Thanks, again. Uh, okay, let's open our Bibles, if we could, to uh, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. I actually thought about preaching this, this sermon with a Canadian accent. Uh, one of the things that's nice about being in the States, uh, down, when I was a kid, we would always travel to the United States, and I would say to my family, do a Canadian accent, do a Canadian accent. And they'd say, out about a, and I'd be like, ah, that can't be it. And then I realized it's a lot more about intonation. It's way more about how you speak than about the, way, the words you say, and that's been just really helpful. So ever since I got off the plane, I've been hearing it. You probably can't hear it because you're here all the time. But anyway, that little aside, maybe I should get back to preaching. Okay, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark chapter 1, actually I'll read verses 14 and 15. Uh, these um, verses, if you've got a red letter Bible, uh, you'll notice that this is the first red letters uh, in the Gospel of Mark. These are the first words of Jesus in both uh, Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. Sorry, and in sorry, both Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. I haven't checked Luke's. But they're presented to us as a summary of uh, Jesus' preaching ministry. They really represent the, the, the core of Jesus' preaching ministry, and I want to uh, read them to you uh, this evening. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I have been uh, humbled just by how needy I felt over the last few days, and then how you've helped in the preparation and trust in the preaching of the first message. And Lord, I just do not want to presume and I want to ask you that you would just increase my neediness and our neediness and our weakness that the power of Christ might rest upon us. I pray that you would just cause me to despair of any human wisdom or eloquence, but that you would allow your word to go forward in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the gospel of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first session, we were dealing with the gospel and really looking at uh, not only what the gospel is in terms of a message of God's power and of the righteousness that He gives and how it's all um, taken by faith. And the first message, we looked at the gospel. And the second message, we want to look at conversion. What does, it, what does it mean to be converted to Jesus Christ? Of course, uh, to, to come to a place where one believes and is saved is to be converted. But we want to do a deeper dive into that and think about what exactly conversion is. And I want to be clear that I'm speaking about Christian conversion. And I think it's important to mention that because we sometimes forget as Christians that all kinds of people have conversion stories. 
that uh, really the world is full. You really probably don't know anybody who doesn't have a time in my life I believe this and live for that and then change. I, I, I saw this actually as a non-Christian. When I was, uh, before I was a believer, I was kind of living in East Vancouver and into the kind of punk scene and a big deal for us was our favorite show on Friday night and finding enough money in the couch to get bucket slice pizza. It's kind of what we were living for. And uh, because we had no money, we used to go to the Hare Krishna temple uh, where they served a free meal. Uh, I can't remember Saturday or Sunday night, but they served a free meal. We, so we'd go to the Hare Krishna temple and these punks would walk in to the Hare Krishna temple and get our free doll and rice and, and whatnot. And occasionally... Uh, their labors to evangelize would work. And some of our friends would leave the group of friends and become a Hare Krishna. Uh, you might remember that Muhammad was converted. Uh, Muhammad wasn't always a Muslim. He, he, there was a time prior to Islam where Muhammad was living uh, amidst what he perceived to be the idolaters of his day, and then he had an experience he believed of hearing the voice of God and receiving the Word of God. And, and then from then on, he went on in a, in a path that millions have followed. Um, the transitioning narrative uh, that's so common, that's everywhere, where people go from hearing outside voices about who I am in terms of my gender and who I am in terms of my identity and then abandoning that to listen to my voice on the inside and then to follow that and then to put, put um, feet, if you will, to those beliefs in terms of surgeries or dressing or names. Th these are all conversions. Or on, on, the, uh, on the flip side, we've often heard in recent years about the deconversion of evangelicals, ex-evangelicals become a thing, and so you'll get online, and maybe some of you, your kids, maybe get you to watch Rhett and Link videos. I don't know, but they they were uh, Christians. They they would profess, and now they've left the faith. We saw this happen with Josh Harris. I have some of his uh, books in my library. Maybe you don't know who that is, but he was writing theology, leading healthy churches, and now is actually living in Vancouver and has abandoned the faith. And these are conversions, conversions are everywhere. There's no shortage of conversions in the world. Herman Bovink, the Dutch theologian, late 1800s, early 1900s, he wrote, some conversions are more religious, others more ethical, still others more intellectual or aesthetic. But all agree in that the lives of people are organized around a new center of ideas and their soul begins to take an interest in things they did not know before or they neglected or despised. Now, I mention that actually for a few different reasons, but one is kind of an evangelistic reason. Sometimes the longer you're a Christian, the more you can feel a difficulty in relating to unbelievers, and that's really a shame. And it really is a skill to keep up, to be able to actively engage with unbelievers. But one of the things you may just want to start asking people as you're getting to know them is, you ever had anything just life-transforming in your life? You, you, they, everyone is able to unpack their own worldview. Everyone is able to unpack their dark delight experience. And it's just, an, I, was a, I met a Rwandan guy at a grocery store in, in, in Louisville 
just a few weeks ago, and we just sort of hit it off in the grocery line, and I asked him if I could buy him lunch, and I found an African uh, restaurant in Louisville and took him there, and, you know, uh, we're talking about halfway in, and I said, hey, tell me about what you think about religion, and what do you do? He proceeded to tell me how he grew up going to Christian schools in Rwanda, but he'd grown up in the Muslim faith, and then his brother died, and he left a belief in God. Well, it was just all right there. And now I'm not just having an abstract theological conversation with him. I'm talking to him about the things that matter to him and his soul because I understood the conversion that he experienced. And of course, I'm hoping he experiences another conversion, the kind of conversion we're talking about tonight, conversion to Jesus Christ. Now, in Mark's Gospel, these words uh, that Jesus speaks make it abundantly clear that Jesus is a conversionist. Jesus wants to see people converted. He thinks they are going the wrong way, on the wrong path, believing the wrong things, and their lives are ordered in the wrong ways. And he wants to see that transformed around himself. And so we can make no mistake about it. Jesus is eager to, see, to make, well, is it any more complicated than saying this? He wants to make disciples. He's the one who coined those famous two words, follow me. He's trying to turn people away from a kingdom of darkness and to a kingdom of himself, the beloved son of God. I want to encourage you, beloved, especially given what's happening currently in the Canadian legal system. I was preparing this sermon and I'm actively just in the text, in the text, conversion, conversion, conversion. And then all of a sudden I remembered the news headlines over the last couple of years, and I'm like, they gave me the conversion talk. <laughs> Settle it in your minds, beloved. When someone comes after you and says, were you trying to convert them? Your answer is unashamedly, you bet. That's exactly what I was trying to do. And in fact, you could say to them, and I'd like to convert you too. Which is what Paul did. You remember his line when he's witnessing while in bonds? I wish that all men were as, my, as I am, except for these chains. We are unapologetically conversionists. But not just into conversion, into conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to explore conversion under four headings or four points. I want to look at conversion's motivation. What moves a person to be converted to Jesus Christ? I want to look at conversion's motions. What, what is the motion of the soul that takes place in conversion? I want to look at the miracle of conversion. This is not a normal logical sequence. This isn't just, oh, I thought about it for years and I came to the logical conclusion of my beliefs. No, Christian conversion is a miracle. And then finally, I want to look at the means of conversion. What can we do? What are we to do so that more and more men and women would be converted to Jesus Christ? So the first thing is the motivation. You see it right there in the text. If you look at verse 15, it says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now you'll have to trust me for a minute that repent and believe in the gospel, that is conversion. We'll get there. 
But for now, notice what gets you to repent and believe. What gets you to turn and trust. And it's this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And if you will, there's an implied, therefore, repent and believe in the Gospel. Now, one of the things that's neat about living in God's world is that not all times are equal. Isn't that interesting? Not every day is, is the same. Now, I, I don't mean that uh, sometimes a minute doesn't have 60 seconds or sometimes an hour doesn't have 60 minutes. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that not all times are the same. Ecclesiastes uh, says this really well. It actually wasn't the birds who said this. It was Ecclesiastes. There's a time to be born and a time to die. I'm dating myself. For, for you people who thought I, I was talking about birds speaking wisdom, I'm talking about a band. But anyway, a time to be born, time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, time to kill, time to heal. I could go on, but you, you get the point. Not all times are the same. I, I experienced that coming here. I've been thinking for weeks about getting here, but, and you know, but what, is, what, what is involved? What kind of times are involved? Well, there's standing at the airport. There's sitting in the plane. There's lying on the hotel bed. And now here we are. These are not, all, these are not equal. Right? So different times lead to what we could even call more important times than others. And and the central time division in the Bible is the difference between the time of promise and the time of fulfillment. And those two times, the promise and the fulfillment, they lead to two different postures of the soul. There's a time for waiting, and then once what God has promised is accomplished, there's a time for responding. And what we need to remember here is that when Jesus comes into the Gospel of Mark and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, he would have said kingdom of heaven in Matthew, but the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not speaking out of nowhere. It's not like, but like I'm a new king in town. This is not coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of thousands of years. God coming to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. Kings will come from you. Or 2 Samuel 7, coming to David. I'm going to make your house, your royal dynasty, last forever. And your enemies will be destroyed. And those who are under you will be preserved. Throughout the Bible, there's this constant promise. A kingdom is coming. A kingdom is coming. And there's two things this kingdom will do. It will destroy and it will save. It will execute justice on the wicked and it will give a gift of justice to the wicked who believe. Uh, Jim Hamilton, a pastor uh, near where I pastor in Louisville, has, has written a book basically saying the whole Bible could be summed up in, in this idea that the Bible is God's salvation through judgment. That God is a God who brings a kingdom into the world. And that kingdom, like all kingdoms, has enemies and allies. And its enemies are destroyed and its allies are protected. 
And what Jesus is saying here is that all of that, you picture the Old Testament as this, this long, hundreds and even thousands year long drum roll, just, just building tension the entire time. And then His arrival is the cymbal crash at the end of the drum roll. The kingdom that is promised is now here. It's at hand. Now, I, I noticed this. This is quite fascinating. I hope you like this. It, it says the, king, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. I mean, at hand, that's close. I mean, Clint's not even at hand right now. He's a, he's a few arm lengths away. At hand is right there, right there. Where's God in this passage? Well, Jesus is God. Oh, well, Ryan, yeah, okay, we get it. That theology says that. But you're kind of pushing it if you think Mark means that. Did you go back one page? The first thing Mark says in his whole gospel is he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, which if you're not familiar with your Bible, is Old Testament, is hundreds of years before Jesus. And in Isaiah's day, when you said Lord, there was one person you were talking about, and that's Yahweh. That's the God of the Old Testament. The one who would bring a kingdom. The one who would destroy and the one who would save. And John the Baptist, it says this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. Whose face? Who will prepare your way? Whose way? A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes and says, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. He is not just coming telling us He's God's representative. He is not like, you know, the Muslims want to make Jesus, I think, 24 out of 25 prophets. He's not saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big deal. I'm one of the main spokesmen. He is announcing that He is God in the flesh having arrived. Did you know that if you go looking for verses in the New Testament that say Jesus is God, you'll actually find it hard to find them. They're there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They're there. But they're rare. But if you look for passages where the God of the Old Testament is described as Jesus, or rather where Jesus is described as the God of the Old Testament, they're on every page. And the deity of Christ begins to just jump out at you. Not as some abstract thing that maybe they came up with in the 4th century. But as the faith of our fathers, as the faith of the Bible. Jesus is saying, well, here's what He's saying. He's saying what will be said in Paul's lips in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. I want you to hear these words. He's saying that a new time has come. And Paul sums this up in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. At the end of one of his sermons, he says these words. He says this. The times of ignorance, there were different times. There were times when God let all the false religions go on in ignorance. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Ryan, get into repentance and faith. Get into the Gospel. 
Here's why I'm belaboring this point. Many, in fact, I'll say most conversions that people experience are rooted in what they understand about history. Most of the reasons people change are because of how they believe history is unfolding. What are we told in recent years if we're, say, not supportive of gay marriage? You are on the wrong side of history. Oh, you'd heard that before. And so why has there been this massive acceptance? No one wants to be on the wrong side of history. If history is a lightning bolt struck a mud puddle and now amoebas are monkeys and now man, well then we're here for a good time, not a long time, so have a good time. Sun can't shine every day. You see what's happening? A view of history leads to a way of life. Why does everyone feel so meaningless and nihilistic? Well, if the world is just a random crapshoot, a roll of the dice over billions and billions of years, then there is no meaning. Or you'll hear people say, when I finally left Christianity, I felt freer. Of course you did. You'd been thinking about judgment and salvation. And now that I realize nothing matters, there's a freedom. Their view of history is leading to the conversion. Are you following me? Listen, I'm from the American South. I'm going to need an amen. At least one. Okay? You all do that here? You can, you can do You can grow. We can change. We can grow. You can be converted. So if my life is just sand dripping through the hourglass and life just is all there is and there's not going to be anything after death, then why shouldn't I just have whatever sexual partners I want? What reason will you give me? Here's what I'm trying to be labor, beloved. If you do not preach a Christian view of time and a Christian view of history, if you're too busy getting to the gospel stuff, the spiritual stuff, to actually declare that God is the God of this world who's orchestrating times and seasons and He's fixed a day by a man who came at an hour. If you don't say that, you'll never get to conversion. Because conversion, thank you, conversion, conversion is an unfolding. It's a response to what God is doing in history. Okay, second thing. So what's happening in conversion is, first of all, it's being motivated by the kingdom of God being present and active and at hand. Second, here are the moves that conversion works in the soul. When a person understands that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's something beautiful happens. You see, Jesus could say the kingdom of God is at hand, you're all dead. He could say there's a new king in town, I'm destroying all enemies. But it's actually clear that this kingdom wants to extend mercy and wants to bring rebels in. Why else would you say, repent? You don't say, repent or turn to people you're just going to destroy. He's saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, but come and turn to me and believe in me. There's an openness, there's an invitation in this kingdom. And so what he's inviting is he's inviting two movements to happen in our soul. One is repentance, the other is faith. Now the first thing I want to say about repentance is that it's not a small thing. 
You know, sometimes when you move from one kingdom to the next, there's small little changes. Like when I cross the border, you know, I get rid of my U.S. greenbacks and I get that plastic money that they're distributing here. And, and, uh, and um, you know, there's these little changes. I stop driving 55 miles an hour. I start driving 100 kilometers an hour. There's, there's subtle changes. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. The switch from one kingdom to another. But the switch from this kingdom to the other kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of, of God, is described as valleys and hills. Well, let's read it. He, valleys and hills being laid low and rugged places being made a plain. It's, it's complete geographic overhaul is the way God describes repentance. It's like the dark becoming light. It's the evil becoming good. Now, what is repentance? What is repentance? Well, the word metanoia, just by itself, means a change of mind. And, and repentance is certainly no less than that. Repentance means that I, I used to think my opinions were matter, what mattered. Now I see God's Word is what matters. I used to think that my laws were what mattered. Now I see that God's law is what matters. I used to think that my concept of forgiveness was what mattered. Now I see that God's concept of forgiveness matters. So there is a change of mind. And some of you, I mean, those of you, all of us, I hope, who have been converted, think about how you thought before you were a believer. And now there's been a change of mind. But if we just had the word metanoia, I don't know that we'd actually get the full heart of repentance. Because you see, repentance, uh, especially when you look at the Old Testament words for repentance, clearly touches not just the mind, but the heart. D.A. Carson, in summarizing the Old Testament words that lead to repentance, uh, say uh, they, they can be translated to be, to be sorry for one's actions, to turn around to new actions. It's, it's a 180 of the soul, and it's not just a 180 of the soul's actions, but it's a, it's a 180 of the soul's attitudes. You hate what you once loved. You love what you once hated. James Montgomery Boyce gives a great illustration of exactly what this looks like. He was speaking to some children, apparently, and he was asking the children, what, what does repentance mean? And one kid's like, it means to be sorry. And another little girl puts up her hand and she goes, it means to be sorry enough to change. That's repentance. Now let me be very clear with you. One of the reasons why many Christians have so little joy is because if they are converted, they've been barely converted. Because we settle for something less than biblical repentance as our repentance. I'm going to imagine in a room this size there's some intractable marriage problems. I'm going to imagine in, this, uh, in a room this size there's some sins that won't go away. And very often what's happening with sins is, is you meet people and what do they say? I confess this, I confess this, I confess this, I confess this. But their confessions are often a way of making sure they don't get down to the reality of repentance. There's a way to sort of say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that, without ever grappling with, I am evil to the core without Jesus. I am wicked down to the roots and I need to pull the whole thing up. 
The, the Bible, think of some of the illustrations the Bible uses to describe repentance. Putting off the old man, putting on the new, clothing yourself, tearing off the wicked sin of clothing, and putting on a new clothing. There is something radical about repentance. It is not just confession. It doesn't, it's not less than confession. But it's an actual turning. And it's a turning from the heart. The other thing that's involved is not just repentance, but faith. The Christian life is not merely a turning away from, but a turning to. It's a turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Notice Jesus says, repent and believe or have faith in the gospel. And of course, the gospel simply means the good news. Uh, here at the first chapter of Mark, it's not entirely sh- clear what all the gospel will mean. But as you go through the gospel of Mark, and Jesus begins to say things like, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom, a payment for many. And then finally at the end of the gospel of Mark, when He's hanging on the cross, what becomes clear is that the good news is that this king, this kingdom that's at hand, has a king who rules it, who will pay for the sinners of those who will repent. If anyone will turn away from their sin, he'll pay their penalty. He'll pay their death penalty. And so he's saying, repent and believe me. Trust me. He's calling us to faith. Now, what does saving faith look like? Well, First of all, there's a knowledge component. There really is a knowledge component. Saving faith is not just that general attitude of it's all going to work out. There's a haunting verse in the book of Romans where Paul says of the Jews, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There will be people in hell who had a zeal for God. But they didn't know the truth. Saving faith knows the truth. But there's not just an element of knowledge. It's the kind of truth you begin to trust. If you've got a mechanic in your life that you trust, you have a good gift. And if you're a mechanic here who's trustworthy, you are a good gift. And how did you get to the point where you trusted this mechanic? Well, every time they said the problem was the certain problem, they fixed it for a reasonable price, and then the car ran. The problem was was gone. They didn't just happen to keep missing it for $2,000 a pop. There's a sense of that in when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We hear His words, and they begin to make more and more sense of the world and our souls and what we need. And we begin to trust Him. There's knowledge, and then there's trust. But you know what happens when you know and trust someone? You begin to love them. You actually begin to love the one who you trust. James Montgomery Boyce again says, Marriage is a good illustration of faith. It is the culmination of a rather extended process of learning response and commitment. The first stages of a courtship may be compared to the first element of faith, content. Here each is getting to know the other. Each is learning whether or not the person possesses what is needed for a good marriage. It's a very important step. If the other person cannot be trusted, for example, there will be trouble later. 
The second stage is comparable to the second element of faith, the movement of the heart. This corresponds to falling in love, which is quite obviously an important step beyond mere knowledge. Finally, the couple says, I do, and promises to live together and love each other regardless of what future circumstances might be. So also we commit ourselves to Christ for this life and for eternity. This is Christian conversion. To see that history is not what you thought it was. It's not just one day after the next. But that God has intervened in history and He's bringing His kingdom. There will be a judgment and there will be a final salvation. What am I to do? I must turn from those things which God damns. I must turn from those things which God hates. I, I must turn from loving them. I must, I must turn from, 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 from embracing them. I have to run from them. I'm, I need to expel them like a poison on my skin. And I need to grab a hold of Christ and each word He speaks to me. Every sermon I hear is one more drop in the bucket that reminds me He's trustworthy. He's good. I give myself to Him. I believe His Gospel. That's what it is to be converted. The third thing I want to say to you is that this conversion is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Have you thought for a while, and again, this is not directly in our text. This is more the context of the text. What's the context of Mark 1, 15 and 16? The whole Bible. So let me reflect with you for a minute about the whole Bible. Think about who Jesus is speaking to when He says, repent and believe. What does the Bible say about those people? Well, in Genesis chapter 6, it says they are only evil continually. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says they are dead in their trespasses and sins. There was this trend a few years ago where kids were being asked to be buried, if they died, with their earbuds in. And there was a little bit of trouble, like, well, how are you going to keep the battery running? I mean, do you need to run a cord? But the crazy part about that whole controversy is it doesn't matter if you've got eternal battery life. They can't hear. They're dead. And that's what Christians, that's what sinners are. Without Christ, they're dead. You can, you can placard the gospel beauties in front of them, and, it, and they, they fall asleep. They rage. You heal people. They want you in jail. They're dead. No ears for this kind of beauty. Think about Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. Think about Romans chapter 8. They do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. Jesus comes to people with no ability to see the glory of anything he's saying. Oh, they can dissect his words. There's plenty of unbelieving scholars who could tell you what the Greek is for Mark 1 through 15 and 16. They could tell you what he said, but to see the beauty of it, to cast themselves upon it, to, to embrace it, to love it, is, is utterly beyond them. They're unable. And it's not, it's not, an, un, un, not an unable like they, they couldn't. It's more of an, uh, uh, an unable like they wouldn't. They're unwilling. You ever heard the illustration of the monkey and the nut? 
monkey sticks his hand in the jar to get a nut, grabs a nut, goes to pull his hand out of the jar, but he can't get it there because he's got his fist made. He went in there all slender, grabbed the nut, can't come out now. Well, can the monkey get his hand out of there? Well, yeah, technically he can. You just got to drop the nut, which he's not going to do. And this is us without Christ. We will not drop the nut of sin. Oh, we might release one sin to grab another. We may have a conversion from one form of sin to another. We might go from licentious to pharisaical, from Islam to Buddhism. We might do all that kind of business, but we will not let go of our own righteousness. We will not let go of our own will. We will not turn from our own way. And this is precisely what Jesus is demanding of the world. This is what He's saying. You cannot be saved without. You cannot be saved unless you turn and you trust. I was sitting at a coffee bar earlier today, just a blocker or so away from the hotel, and I, I, I should have jumped in on this conversation. Maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have, but, but they said some amazingly insightful things. So one barista says to the other barista, sounds like a bad joke, but anyway, so this one barista <laughs> says to the other barista, you know, you said something to me that haunted me the other day. He said, you told me that I think the worst of everyone and I think everyone's corrupt. And he said, and I, I drove home that night and I thought, man, I'm bad. I really need to grow and think better of people. And I wanted to say, oh, no, 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 you're on the right track. You don't need to change a thing. You're, you're, you're in touch with something. You're actually clued in to how bad it is. And what's worse is that no one can change it. And here's Jesus saying, change! Change! You remember the old Bob Newhart skit? Anyone know who Bob Newhart is? Anyway, Bob Newhart's playing a psychologist and this woman says, I'm afraid someone's going to bury me alive in a box. And he goes, well, stop it! I can't! He says, stop it! She goes, I can't. He goes, stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. Is that what Jesus is doing? He's saying, stop it! Quit! Repent! Turn! Feel sorry! Grieve! Trust! And He says it to a world that's dead to it, that doesn't perceive it at all. They can, they can watch their mothers and fathers weeping as they say it to them. They can have people travel across the world to come and tell them. They can have people write them letters pleading with them to repent and believe. And they're just, they're not only just bored, they're insulted. They won't. And there will be no hope for us if it weren't for the miracle of conversion. The miracle of conversion is this, that God's Word creates the response it desires. That God's Word creates the life required to respond in repentance and faith. That God's Word, the same Word that said light, let light shine out of darkness, has shone the light of Christ in our hearts 
so that you and I, who were impervious to seeing God's glory, who were blinded to seeing God's glory, all of a sudden, when some weak little gospel presentation came along, maybe it was a tract with half theological garbage in it. Maybe it was you half asleep reading your Bible. Maybe it was some preacher droning on one more time. But then and there it was. Your eyes were opened. And there was glory in this Jesus. There was beauty. There was an attraction of the soul. There was a, yes, I ought to repent. Yes, this is the right view of time. I ought to repent and I ought to believe. I ought to trust in Him. I'll tell you my own story. It's just amazing. I was uh, talking to my stepmom and getting, she was a, she didn't, I don't know if she knows anything about apologetics formally, but she's an apologetic ninja. I, I, I said to her, I said, there is no absolute truth. She said, do you believe that absolutely? Oh, that one hurt. I said, there's no absolute right and wrong. She said, are you right about that? No, I got thinking about the gospel, thinking about the gospel, and I started asking my dad questions. We were in Drumheller. He drove to Calgary to a Christian bookstore. He bought me a copy of Polly Little's Know Why You Believe. And, and I answered basic questions, science and the Bible. Can you trust the New Testament manuscripts? That kind of thing. And on the back of this book, there's this testimony. And it says, within 45 minutes of reading this book, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And I was laying in my bed in Drumheller, Alberta, and I cussed. And I said, that's exactly what's going to happen to me. And 20 minutes later, I was outside smoking a cigarette asking Jesus to forgive me of all of my sins. And He did. And I saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, listen to this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Or listen to this verse from the book of James. In the book of James, we are told that we were brought forth by the Word of truth. The Word of truth is, is a birthing agent. The, the Word of truth brings new forth newborn spiritual babes out from God into new spiritual life. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to preach and I think of this verse from I believe it's 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul describing his own conversion says that the God who said let light shine in the darkness has shone in our hearts the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I think to myself as I go to preach I feel, I feel like a servant of God under God about to speak that word that brings a new creation. What a thing it is to preach. To, to, to speak a word and God will make a new person here and a new person there. He'll, you say, repent, and believe, and then someone thinks, that sounds perfectly rational to me. In fact, it sounds urgent. In fact, I cannot help. Now, the old theologians called this effectual calling. That is, the gospel comes out and it, it's not just a, an offer, please come to Jesus, but it's what I like to call a Lazarus calling. Remember the story about Lazarus? Jesus comes forth to the grave and the old King James gets it so perfectly. Lazarus has been in the grave four days and it says, behold, he stinketh. He's, he's actually decomposing in the Middle Eastern sun. And Jesus says, it's so incredible, he says, Lazarus, 
come forth. And Lazarus is going, now that presents an interesting decision. That's not what happened. He rose, and the dungeon flamed with light. Lazarus heard the voice of God, and the voice itself awoke him, and the voice itself beckoned him. And Lazarus, with his grave clothes on, walked to Jesus with that irresistible calling that God places in the soul. This is conversion. Conversion is appropriate and fitting and urgent because the time is at hand. It means the soul moves from sin. It runs from sin and it runs to Christ. It gets up off of the bed of sin and rests itself on the bed of faith, trusting in Christ. And then it does this because of a miracle, but that miracle happens through very ordinary means. Do you sing, uh, Brethren, We Have Meant to Worship? Oh, the love of the song. See our Father. So, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship and Adore the Lord our God. And it says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. All of our preaching is vain. But if the Spirit will come, then it works. Do you pray for your preacher? on Saturday night? I mean, do you recognize that when he gets into that pulpit, he is about to speak the same word that made Asia and Europe and made Augustine and Luther and Calvin and all hundred drunks that Harry Ironside could call to testify? Do you pray that he would speak with power? But you know, one of my pet peeves, I, I just don't think preachers get to have all the fun. Do you pray for yourself? Do you recognize that at that coffee shop, with that, with that co-worker in, 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 in the coffee break room, across the fence, the hand of God can be upon you as you speak the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. It can ignite faith in a minute. It can bring about faith, repentance and belief in a minute because that miracle is done through the simplest means just by saying the kingdom is at heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In the coming days, you may be shamed for calling men and women to conver conversion. You, you may have uh, special privileges in this country revoked. You may have jail time threatened. I'll tell a story on Sunday of a Canadian brother I know who's lost his job calling for conversion. All of these things may happen to you. You may wind up in the news. You may wind up the hater of the news. Resolve now that you won't try to find some really smooth way to say, yeah, you were trying to love them and you respect all people and it's all good and you're a Christian. But absolutely, conversion is exactly what I'm after. I want people to believe in Jesus Christ. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and find salvation in Him. Because the time is at hand. And we only have so long before the judgment comes and the day of mercy is closed. Let's pray. Father, we come before You 
we beg You to make us solidly and truly converted men and women. Give us faith in Christ. Lord, where faith has grown weak, where doubts have come upon us, give us renewed trust in Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that You would lead us to be a people who are solidly converted ourselves and to see hundreds and thousands converted through the ministry of the Gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.